welcome to the Philia podcast. Philia means daughter. We are the daughters of the women who came before us and we fight so that our daughters may be free. We are a women-led volunteer organization. Our vision is a world free from patriarchy where all women and girls are liberated. We seek to contribute to the women's liberation movement by building sisterhood and solidarity among women locally, nationally, and globally. By amplifying the voices of women, particularly those less often heard or purposefully silenced, and by defending women's human rights. Our podcast seeks to shed light on some of the most pressing issues facing women and girls around the world. Please take from them what you can. In sisterhood and in solidarity, the Philia team. Uh, hello. Today, I have Griselda Grootboom with me. Griselda is a sex trade survivor, activist, and author from South Africa. Griselda, could you please tell us a little bit more about you? Where do you live and work? What projects are you involved these days? Hi, my name is Griselda Grootboom, and I am from South Africa the Western Cape, Cape Town, in the informal settlement Kayelicha Site C. I am a survivor of sex trafficking and prostitution. I'm the author of the book called Exit. Um, I am also uh, the founder of a foundation called Survivor Exit Foundation. And I am busy with awareness and prevention um, in selling and doing workshops around my book with the human trafficking and prostitution. Uh, thank you, Griselda. And uh, as you have mentioned, you became famous thanks to your fantastic book, Exit. This book depicts your childhood mostly as a street kid in apartheid-era South Africa. It, uh, the book also mentions your journey in the sex trade and your way out of it. I have learned a lot about various ethnic groups in South Africa and their legal rights during apartheid. First, there were whites on the top of the social, economic and legal hierarchy. Second, uh, there were African ethnic groups, Koza and Zulu, that were denied any rights, even the citizenship. And finally, there were colors who enjoyed limited rights. So I know that your origin is poison, although you were able to register as colored. Could you please elaborate a little bit more about Khoisan people, Khoisan women, their culture, their lives in the racist society? Uh, the Khoisan were, were, you know, was the tribe that you would say when you walk around the Eastern Cape, where their first black um, president, late first black president, Nelson Mandela Tlala, was um, from Eastern Cape in Guagua. And when you go to the Eastern Cape, the map 
moving around the Eastern Cape was mostly created by the Khoisan. The Khoisan was a tribe that were very peaceful. Um, they wouldn't dress fully. They ate a lot of ostrich eggs. They ate a lot of springbok meat. They lived in huts they created as they traveled. They were not really interested in any you know, land grabbing and land claiming by the racial regimes. They were just because they moved around quite a lot. So when you move around Eastern Cape, there are like sort of um, sort of caves and mountains that you see their drawings they have left behind as an heritage to prove that they were being there. As for me, as a child, I learned or I decided to learn that they were the first black individual. Um, they were also in the mix between the Kosas and the Khoisan. And that is sort of a discussion of understanding of who became the Kosas after the Khoisan? How did they become um, Kosas? after the question and my heart and my soul always tells me they were the first ever from the eastern cape even when you speak to even if you see certain Kosa peoples up to this day there is a heavy physical resemblance of them looking like the question their cheekbones are higher um, there's a lot of light skin in them. Um, there's also a lot of the body lodging. So the two tribes are heavy together with, um, with, with them looking very similar, but the language is very so also similar. Because when you speak to the Khoisan, there's only a click and there's only a tick and there's only a, a, a like the click is the Khoisan language. And when you speak to the Khosas, you hear that there's a, there's, a, there's a click and a little bit of just fluent, you know, pronunciation of language. And that is sort of the proof of there's a mixture between the Khoisan and the Khosas. Um, during the time of, you know, the apartheid, um, it was probably the most painful because I I just you know I just learned recently when I had to meet my my dad's mom um, and she is from the village in called German Village and that's in Pedi and and that village was controlled by the Germans. Um, my late grandmother was living in sort of still the same sort of. Um, you could say the arbitrates, um houses where it was made out of cow mud and, and wood. And even up till last year, she still couldn't change that house because of, you know, the house was assigned to a descendant from Germany. My granny stayed there in that house because her mother's mother also stayed there and they stayed in that house as slaves. Um, and it was really hard for her to be able to change the house into a home because the rights of the land still belonged to a descendant of Germany, meaning the white people in South Africa that had that have kids from the slavery German people in that village still have the right to that land and my granny could not change this house she was still living in that muddy house even up to the day and when you go to eastern cape you will see that there's a lot of 
Tosa old women that still live in that in that condition because they are told that the land does not belong to them and it's extremely sad because it is now 20 i don't know 20 to 30 years now that we have you know the abolishment of apartheid and here we still have a problem where women of Kosa from the Khoisan tribe still cannot build their own house on the land that they were enslaved with. Um, the arbitrate went from there into, you know, people finally coming to a, a mind of mobilizing themselves to be independent, which was extremely violent and hard like a lot of people died like a lot of people got killed by just standing up for the right of getting water the right of getting food let alone the right of having an identity of an id book which is what we call you know the passport of a visa of who you are um before that amazing time of you know where the history now the history that the world see obviously is the history of Nelson Mandela, Krizani, Tabumbeki, Jacob Zuma, all of those people that fought but before of them there was the Khoisan, there was um, the Khasa kings um, and those people literally suffered so much under the racism that the white people came and you know it was the germans it was the the hollands it was the european the british and all of them came to south africa and just took land over and up to this day we still really struggling on the battle of claiming land and having land back Thank you, uh, Griselda. I, I hope to visit you after the COVID pandemic and uh, to see all this uh, area. Very interesting. And uh, I, I also have seen in the book that uh, you were formerly belonging to the colored group, right? But uh, despite the fact that this group uh, had certain rights under the apartheid, your family has suffered from poverty and discrimination. Your parents lived in slums and uh, they did not always have employment. The authorities demolished your father's neighborhood. How did apartheid limit your parents' opportunities? Oh, it, it, was, it was so limited that by the time we, we lived in the city of Cape Town, which is not far from um, the District 6, which is a very famous tourist destination today in the Western Cape, Cape Town, um, where they call it the District 6, where all the colored people were staying. Um, they call it the District 6 because the colored people used to color, they, they used to sort of um, have a very colorful life in, in what they did with their culture. Um, and when I was eight years old, the beginning of colored people being removed from their homes were taking place. I can clearly still remember being eight years old and, and feeling the community being so down and dull and seeing house to house being cut off um, in front of me and you just see these big trucks coming and taking. And at first I thought, no, they're probably gonna give us better houses. 
Um, but I knew that we had, we had great houses. We had strong houses. Um, and for me, when that happened, my dad just used to just disappear and come back in the evening extremely drunk. And I just remember the last, the last house of the corner was our house where my dad came to pick me up early that morning and he said, we need to go to the harbor because there's some fishes that he needs to go and get so he can be able to sell it. And I remember saying, okay, we need to go back home. And he said, no, we're going to go to the shelter. And that was the shock to my system that we actually don't have a home anymore. And the shelter was not even far from my area either. And that was the beginning of me becoming homeless, of me being becoming lonely, of me being outcast, and of me being lost in the same um, community and environment that I thought would have been forever home. Thank you, Griselda, for t uh, explaining me this. And... Uh, now, uh, you had been living on the streets uh, since the age of nine, sometimes in the shelters, as you have mentioned. If a white girl would be in the same situation like yours, with poor yeah. parents, parents who are not able to raise her, what would happen to her? You had been living on the streets, sometimes you were in the shelters. If you would be white, how would your life be different? Oh, if I was white, my life would have been extremely different. I would have had assistance of a good shelter. I think literally also a boarding house where I was be able to get full counseling assistance, where I was going to get full education um, assistance and health. I think today I would have probably finished my schooling. I would have probably um, had my own home. I It would have it been extremely different. Um, I would have been rescued in a week from the streets. If I was white, I would have probably also maybe get assistance to go to a good, healthy environment, boarding school, um, as a street poor person. Um, even if you come to Cape Town, you will see that there were sort of um, lower working class white poor people, but they were staying in, in an area that was very white, but very rich white. So we used to walk around the street kids in Cape Town in that same area. And we saw a lot of developments that was extremely unfair and injustice to us. And it really sort of made us feel like we are not wanted as black street kids. And we saw a lot of white people just living their lives and seeing us, but not finding any interest. So if I was a white person, I would have probably been much better off as I am today. This is uh, just, uh, just wrong. Uh, but uh, in uh, 1994, apartheid was abolished. In, the, in your book, I remember that uh, you have described an independent celebration in which the shelter kids participated. But uh, after that, nothing has changed for you. You just got back to your shelter and to your lack of opportunities. So who was actually affected by the change in South Africa? Which social or ethnic groups were given more options? I think the people that got more... <laughs> 
I still remember that day on the parade, the people that got more in out of the, you know, the abolishment of arbitrage was the, the Cossacks because Nelson Mandela was, you know, the first sort of black president and he comes from a Cossack tribe. Um, and then also the Zulus that really had Shaka Zulu on him fighting the British. And for that, he received so many appreciation. And those were the people that received the first grand celebration for the first couple of 10 years of the 1994. Um, the people that got left out was mostly the colored people. It was mostly the people that is your normal average South African citizen. And even up to today, they still suffering quite a lot of corrupted gaps that these two tribes did because the rights to land, the rights to economic um, um, rights is still not changed from the white man's hand and the white man government. So there are three tribes now that's holding South Africa in so much apartheid trauma and depression, I would call it, because we still see some fights going on. The colored people are still the people that are suffering. We still don't get, we still don't have our culture back. Um, just the Western Cape itself, it's governed by a white um, government and they call them the, De the Democratic Alliance. Um, and if you want to have a job in the Western Cape, if you want to be um, living your normal caring life, you have to vote for the Democratic Alliance. Um, and that is a white government and they run the Western Cape. And, you know, it was founded also by a German journalist called Miss Helen Zilla. Um, and her policies and her laws when it comes to assisting black and colored people in the Cape Town Western Cape is extremely hard. You know, it is it, it is still poverty thought. It is still um, where she feels like we don't deserve good toilets. She feels like we don't deserve clean water. She feels like we don't deserve land because we don't know what to do with it. Um, so it's extremely where the colored people have decided to just go violent on each other. And that's just another sign of how the white government is enjoying because those are the people that still did not benefit from this arbitrate celebration joy of getting back our freedom. And I remember saying once, I remember that day as a young kid wearing this big t-shirt standing amongst so many black men and screaming freedom. And today there is still no freedom for women and girls in this country, especially black and colored women and girls in South Africa. We do not see freedom. Instead, we see shackles on our feet. I am sorry to hear about it. I, I guess this is a long process. So now let's uh, talk a little bit about the sex trade. In your book, you criticize the activists who claim that women in South Africa and in general are forcibly prostituted. You say that it is not always a matter of physical coercion. Sometimes it is a matter of circumstances. So what circumstances cause women like you to enter, enter the circle of prostitution? 
Um, my circumstance, it was because I was a street kid um, and somebody which was a friend took advantage of me. Um, she didn't feel the need to care of what I'd been through. Instead, she took advantage of it. And when she trafficked me to another city, um, I thought I was going to get an opportunity. And this is the sort of language, apparently, for us Black women in South Africa. If somebody is going to give you a good opportunity and your desire as a woman, the opportunity is to get work, right? It is to take care of your family. And you trust this person to understand that. And when you trust them, they decide to, dis- to use you for something else. When I got to Joburg to meet up with her, I didn't have a slight idea of this was going to happen to me. When she, when she welcomed me into the flat, I was like, wow, you know, my life is about to change. And when I walked in the room and there was nothing, I, I had no questions to ask because I knew this was going to be a whole new life for me. And me taking a nap and being woken up by three African black men kicked and undressed and duct tape around my eye and injected with sort of a drug behind my knee. It was like, thought we, I thought I was in the wrong house. I thought the same thing is happening to her. And then when the first guy sort of held my head laid me down, bent me over and did what is dead is when I knew that this was me being going to be sexually exploited like a dog. And it started to happen every day. And when they kicked me out in the middle of the night and brought a younger girl, which I felt was, she probably has never ever been through any sort of pain is when I knew that the house was being a place where they exploit women and girls and traffic them. And just in the thought in my head, when I walked out of the house, trying to find back where I came from, trying to find help, trying to find drugs, trying to find my friend, in my head, I was like, I thought I came here for a better opportunity. I thought I trusted the person. And that's the language that is being manipulated right now with an organization called SWEAT, says Corner, um, the sex work oppositions. They feel as if this is the only form of assistance for a woman that comes from poverty and vulnerability and now they're trying to manipulate survivors languages of the true story of how they get be pulled in or recruited or manipulated into the sex trade because there's a need for a job and in my head i'm trying to wrap it around is like why is sexual exploitation the only job for the same black women in South Africa, in Africa, where we're trying to recover from slavery? Why is this oppression still going forth to that level, but this time on women? And I feel it is not just the fault of those who is pushing the narrative. 
it's also the fault of everyday black African men that has always put the culture of women should not be equal to men. Women should be the African women that get stuck. And every day in my head, I just see the Sarki Batman in a box and going to Europe. Um, and I feel people are pushing to say that women and girls should sell their body for money it is not an agenda that comes from those women. It is not an agenda that comes from an organization that says it's for so. It's an agenda that comes from the same white people that are benefiting economically from women's bodies. And they do not want to give us the freedom or right to become what we've always wanted to become, owning lands, becoming the Africans that we were supposed to be. And and for me, that's just, that's the problematic problem. You mentioned those people who push the sex work narrative. Yeah. Uh, I will try to play a devil's advocate and uh, I will ask you. Th those people uh, argue that uh, if uh, the sex trade would be completely legal, it could be less violent, less dangerous. And right now, we can learn from your book how violent and criminal it is. But uh, maybe legal strip clubs and legal prostitution services would make the sex trade less harmful for you and for other women? What do you think? Um, I've experienced the, that sort of legal strip club, legal... Um, safeguarding and there's no legal safeguarding the last brothel i worked with was what it was sort of advertised on newspapers it was advertised on porn sites um and it was advertised as a gentleman's club and it was earned by a white woman and by a south african husband which was working for the south african you know military and this brothel, you would walk in it and you would think, oh, no, it's just stripping. You would see our pictures in the newspaper like, oh, no, it's just stripping. But on the other side of the same brothel, there were three bedrooms that had different kind of themes. Um, and it was mostly, you know, five or ten white girls two or three colored girls and one black girl, which was me. Sometimes it would be another black girl. Um, and there was never such thing of of the legal safeness of it. Every client I had every freaking day and hour in that place gave me a consequences of health problems every day. It gave me a high level of using drugs and alcohol. You would probably OD twice a month where you just like, you know, you're out. And that is because the clients that came in were so many per night. And for you to keep up with that, with your body, with your, with your mind, with your private part, it was like an, an every 30 minutes fix that you need to fix. There were times where we had to put stuff in our vagina. There were times that we had to take sort of drugs just to stay awake because you are sleepy, you are out. There were times where we were bleeding in places that we were not supposed to bleed because men used to come in drunk. There were men that came in that were doing this sexual fantasy with us because of the rituals they were doing and they needed to rub it off on us or sleep with us. Um, and there was no time that you as a woman or as your mind, as a human being, that you could rest. 
the rest you get, or you're resting in the hospital, or you're resting in your house, taking some medication to recover. And that only happens when you have something really bad, like you OD'd or the cops came in or there was a fight that broke out between two clients because sometimes there would be drug dealers coming in. Sometimes there would be men that are doing a lot of criminal work and they come in, you know, sort of relax with us in the brothel, buying our bodies and there will be fights breaking out. There will be guns going off. So there's no safety in the legalization of prostitution. If it's not that, you're sort of having an abortion. So there were so many girls having abortion per year because some men wanted to feel their money's worth. So they didn't need to feel to wear a condom. And even up to today, sitting here and talking with you, I'm still suffering quite a lot of that sort of violent pain and health pain. Thank you, Griselda. But um, I, I will just, uh, some another argument of the sex workers work people, they say that uh, what if, if we abolish the sex trade, what will all the poor women do? Where you will go if the sex trade is banned? So you were this woman who turned to utterly surviving prostitution. What you can say today to the people who believe that prostitution is appropriate for destitute women? Uh, the poor woman is the same woman that is the poor black child that has an education that cannot get a job. And, you know, people are not getting jobs in South Africa because of a corrupted government. The poor woman, most of the time, is also the immigrant woman that's been legally, you know, sort of labor trafficked into South Africa. Um, and gets and gets threatened by individuals to tell them if you don't do if you don't work in this factory you are going to be put on prostitution and the poor woman is the woman that is afraid to go back home because she knows there's a law that says if you're illegal in a country you're going to be locked up as much as she was brought in by labor trafficking or forced trafficking so when we speak about the poor woman, we're speaking about the poor woman that is being betrayed by the government that's not creating the jobs for women. We speak about the poor woman that is being trafficked through, you know, poor borders that is, you know, by traffickers and pimps, and the organ trafficking that also happens. So when we speak about the poor woman, we shouldn't just speak about because she's poor. No, she's poor because of a certain system, because of a racial system, because of an unfair government system. And that is why women are poor. Women do not want to be on streets. We go on the streets every night just to check if women are going for their health care and finding out if they do want to exit. And some of them are so afraid to exit because there are pimps that are holding their children there are pimps that are holding their documents and they are all South Africans. So that is when we talk about the poor woman, we should be talking about a way for them not to be poor, but not the sexual exploitation way, but a way of them being developed and economically sustained. That is what we're supposed to be talking about of the poor woman. Okay. Uh, yes, I understand. So today you live in, uh, uh, you have mentioned earlier, today you live in Kalich. This is uh, the poor neighborhood where you grew up and were exposed to a lot of crime and violence. Uh, 
and uh, you still live there and uh, you are raising there your son. So my question is, um, you know, if, if uh, in your dreams, how would you like your future to be? You, would you like to live with him for a better neighborhood or to stay there and change the community from within? At this point, Kailicha has become extremely notorious. We hear gunshots go off every day. Um, we hear of rape cases under the four, age of 14 every day. Um, we hear women being femicide killed every day. My dream world would be I would love to change um, Kailicha, my community, but because of political corruption um, and men power corruption and violence just growing. It seems like alcohol and drugs is being just pushed into our community. I wouldn't want my son and I to stay there. I would love to move out there. I would love to move in an environment that's clean where my mind does not have to go into an anxiety or a depression state every time I hear gunshots or every time I have to go and help a girl that just got raped. Um, at this point, I just really want to get my own home with my son. I really just want a decent living where I can take care of my child and he goes to school and have a better life than what I have. And that's all I desire. And, and just also um, helping other women survive and victims that wants to come out of the sexual exploitation or any poverty violent environment. So my dream world at this point in the next five years is to get out from Kailicha sightsee, moving to my own apartment or small apartment with my son, have a good living and take care of my son, him going to school and maybe start writing books of other women survivors because the fear of you just telling your story in South Africa it is like you need to watch over your shoulder every day um, the justice system still don't listen to what we have to say um, they call us all kind of names when we speak up um, they bring up all kind of constitution justice rights for the perpetrators. so a lot of survivors just go underdog. They just stay there. They don't want to come out and they get lost into depression and anxiety and commit suicide. And nobody wants to talk about that because survivors don't want to talk about that pain and violence. So for me, it's just, I would really pray somebody could just come and help me with this escape of exiting out of this environment. I understand you. So just uh, before we end, uh, I would like you to, you, you have founded a survivor-led NGO, which purpose is to help other survivors. Can you please elaborate a little bit about this NGO, what, what, what the projects are, how do they work? Um, at this point, it's not very full functional because um, I'm not getting assistance. Um, it's more of a foundation at this point where we just try our level best to do a lot of prevention where I have to go out and speak about my story so I can help other organizations. Mine is just a foundation where I be able to sell my books. If I get little money from that, I have to help myself from it because I don't get full assistance also from any other organizations or any source. 
and during the COVID, we, it was extremely hard. We had to ask other people for help, for healthcare. In fact, the healthcare itself couldn't come through. So it's just the foundation where I've decided we're going to do more awareness um, and prevention. So whatever we get, we'll be able to help. Sometimes I use the money to go out and help women to bail them out of jail or help women to take care of their kids. Um, most of the women do not want to be known. Most of the women are afraid to go into safe houses. Um, most of the women cannot get full assistance to be on rehab, um, to get out of drugs or get out of substance, and which is the first ever need that needs to be taken care of before they can even be put in a place. Um, and my foundation, we do probably just one or two when we have the support, financial support. Um, if not financial support, I am part of the, um, you know, sort of task tip collation um, where organizations came together and we, if we get a victim that needs immediate assistance, those organizations come to place. I contact them, call them, let them know there's a case. They take the person and put them somewhere if they can, if they can. And the if they can is the most painful one when we talk about combating individuals that being sexually exploited unfairly. The if is a big problem for me. The but is a big problem for me. Um, and those are the questions that victims get. And I mean, when you're a victim and you want to come out, the last thing you need is the word if <laughs> on a rescue for your life. And that is what the foundation is trying to fight against. And uh, you, you also partly volunteer with the survivor-led NGO Embrace Dignity. Could you share a little bit more about Embrace Dignity, what this NGO is, what she is doing? Embrace Dignity is a sort of an organization that fights on the law reform for decriminalization um, of um, prostitution. They help survivors exit um, in ways of skills. But at this point, they have moved away from that because they also do not get funding, much funding on how to help survivors exit. Um, so they've decided just to stick on one thing, and that is the law reform of decriminalization um, and the equality law and the Nordic law, which is all together. I'm sorry, I'm an abolitionist. Um, and Embrace Dignity sort of helped me to write my book. Um, Embrace Dignity also helped me a lot to be on amazing platforms to tell my story so I can push on the abolitionist of the sex trade. Um, and I learned quite a lot and I'm looking forward to learn a lot from them. Um, Embrace Dignity has assisted quite a lot of survivors for the past 10 years um, to be on and be on their feet, but to to be consistent was extremely hard. They still exist. They've been existing. It was founded by Nozizwe Routledge. Um, and she's a very, very, very beautiful, kind woman that has been doing this work. And we appreciate her every day in the work that she do. If it was not for her, I don't think people would ever think there would be a thought of women actually do want to come out of prostitution because people think women wants to be there 
poor in need of selfish desires. So Embrace Dignity has really, really assisted South Africa to have the debate and have the conversation. If it wasn't to Embrace Dignity, I don't think we'd even have a conversation in South Africa of what prostitution is actually in South Africa. Thank you. So uh, my last question is that uh, you have been through so much yet your story still awaits a happy ending you don't have a full-time stable job you don't have have a laptop to write your next book but uh, you have so much motivation inner strength and talent Mm -hmm. you're a terrific writer and a terrific speaker where do you see yourself in the next five years well in the next five years um I see myself, um, you know, launching my second book. Uh, In the next five years, I see myself with a whole global survivors in one room, in one conference. And it's just survivors. And we are discussing um, the most combating way going forward in ending it. um, in the next five years, I see myself having my own home, uh, with my own bathroom, with um, my son being the greatest guy ever finishing school. Um, I see myself also having sort of the most amazing talk show where I'm the host and speaking to survivors and making them feel comfortable in who they are. Um yeah, in the next five years, that, that, is, that is what I'm dreaming for. I'm hoping to get a full, stable income where I am able to do what my heart desires is in what I speak about every day, and that is ending sex trafficking and prostitution. Thank you, Griselda. I'm uh, looking forward to meeting you after the COVID pandemic. Oh, yes. I'm looking forward to meet you, too. So thank you so much. Have a wonderful day. You, too. Thank you very much and have a great day. Thank you, dear listener, for tuning in. We are incredibly grateful to all the women who donate their time and their efforts to create this podcast. That includes our guests, our interviewers, and our editors. You can find us on your favorite listening platforms like Apple, Stitcher, and Spotify. Just search for Philia Podcast. Please help us reach even more women. You can do that by subscribing to our show, by sharing this podcast with your friends, with your family, and with your coworkers, or by leaving us a positive rating and review. Philia organizes the largest annual grassroots feminist conference in the UK. We would love to see you there. You can support our work by joining the Friends of Philia scheme, by giving a solidarity ticket so that even more women can join our conference, and by subscribing to our newsletter. Please take a look around our website, philia.org.uk, to find out more. Together, Women make magic happen, and we can't wait to be in touch with you.